Funding for this podcast comes from the members of Massachusetts Public Radio and the John A. and Maria L. Douglas Foundation, supporting investigative journalism on public radio stations across America, and from listeners like you. Mermaids of Murrow's Cove is a serial podcast. Please be sure to listen to the episodes in order. This is Episode 3, Daughter of Agliope. If you like what you hear, please rate and review the podcast in iTunes. death of Alice Crocker has been ruled a suicide. The witch can't be stopped. She is coming for us, and we do nothing but wait. A mermaid wants to talk to you. I can give you what you need, but I need a favor in return. February 1st, 1812. The Irishman, the witch, the five fishermen, and their families left this morning. I saw their caravan heading north. Forty-three men, women, and children headed up the hills and into the forests in the dead of winter, wishing to reach the most distant shore. It is lunacy. There's a reason our great-grandparents stopped their pilgrimage here. God told them this was the place to raise their families. The treacherous geography confirmed the Lord's wish. They will all die within a week. Unless the witch protects them with her magic, they will die of cold and hunger. A storm is coming. A big one, said Mrs. Wright, who can feel the weather in her old bones. Reverend Smith asked me to pray for them. I won't. The devil worshipers don't deserve my prayers. That's Nick Johnson from Waves 95.5, reading another entry from the 200-year-old diary we discovered in last week's episode. The entries keep getting stranger. I'm Emma Kersey with Massachusetts Public Radio. You're listening to Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. March 1st, 1812. We have not heard from the devil worshippers. People in town think they starved to death. As predicted by Mrs. Wright, a big snowstorm came two days after they left. The air became ice. The wind howled through town, carrying a blinding white blanket. We were trapped in our houses for three days. Many animals died, frozen in place. It was a blizzard like we haven't seen in years. God's punishment to those who followed the false prophet. There is no witch powerful enough to survive such natural fury. The Irishman led them all to their graves as I said he would. Reverend Smith is worried for the fishermen and their families. He is a man of God. He cares for all, even sinners and cripples. He believes them dead too, but he thinks that when spring arrives, we should go up to the mountain and find their bodies. They deserve a Christian burial, he said. They deserve what they had coming, I think. March 5th, 1812. The witch came to me in a dream and asked me to marry her. She was naked as I saw her that night before she left. She wanted to steal my purity, and I wanted her to do it. I woke up sweaty and agitated. My sheets wet in places they shouldn't be. I told this to Reverend Smith, and he asked me to whip my flesh until the unholy thoughts were out of my mind. My back is bleeding. My soul is full of embarrassment. I can't stop thinking about her. The witch is coming for me from hell. 
She is trying to take my soul, and I don't know that I can stop her. March 10th, 1812. Reverend Smith is troubled. He said other men had confessed in pure thoughts. She is coming to them in dreams. The witch is haunting all of us. I asked the reverend if he had dreamed of her. He slapped me and made me fast for an entire day. He is a man of God. He is immune to witchery. March 15th, 1812. She sings. The witch. She sings at night. We can all hear her. People don't talk about it. When I ask them if they heard her song the night before, they cross themselves and walk away. We are afraid. We lock our doors at night and close our windows. We cover our ears with wax and then pray to God that her song doesn't wake us up in the middle of the night, but it does. Her evil melody cannot be contained. It cannot be stopped by prayers. It can't be stopped by wax. The witch can't be stopped. She is coming for us and we do nothing but wait. March 16, 1812. We will burn her at the stake. Reverend Smith warned us against it, but we will ignore his advice this time. We are leaving tomorrow at dawn. We will follow their steps, find the witch, and burn her. I don't believe in the supernatural in general. If I can be completely honest, I even have a hard time believing in God. I have to admit though, the more I read this man's diary, the more I feel a connection between his story and the story I'm trying to uncover. I don't know what it is yet, but like the woman in this town, I can feel it in my bones. I'm a very practical person. I think that's why I became an investigative reporter. Solving mysteries, finding evidence, researching the truth is what helps me make sense of the world. I guess my choices were a policewoman or a reporter. As you've heard, it's challenging for me to follow the rules, so journalism it is. asked John to continue looking into Patrick Fitzgerald and the mermaid's stories because I think those stories are connected to the crimes. Meredith Matthews said Alice looked like a sea creature, and I believe her. I think someone wanted her to look that way and worked very hard to make it happen. A sick individual is kidnapping women, starving them, changing the color of their hair, and maybe even bleaching their skin so that they look like mythical creatures. We don't know how long Alice was kept. It could have been years. That would explain the long, abundant hair Meredith talked about. Here's the most disturbing and saddening part of my theory. I think that when these women achieve the look that this psychopath is looking for, he throws them in the ocean. In the last 30 years, three of them have made it out alive. Who knows how many of them drowned? It is not impossible. Sure, now, I mean, there's some twisted people out there, you know, but we don't have much evidence to support your theory, Emma. I know, but we'll find it, though. So you don't believe there's something, uh, let's say, not quite traditional going on here? 
And by not quite traditional, you mean mermaids are real? You said it. Okay. Let's talk about your not quite traditional theory. What if? No, I'm not saying I believe it, you know. But what if Patrick Fitzgerald founded this town with a group of American fishermen? What if the reason for coming to America was part of a deal with his ex's relatives to keep the daughter from being taken? Sure, you know, everybody knew he was the mermaid fella in Ireland. Here, he was a complete stranger. Now tell me, what if he offered the fish people other girls instead of his own daughter? As in human sacrifices? As in a small price, a gift, remember? That's what the old diary says, anyway. But that would imply the people in my town have been sacrificing girls to sea gods for 200 years. You say that out loud, and then tell me you're serious. It's a working theory. I say you have a very active imagination. No, my theory is as plausible as yours. Somehow, I don't think that's true. Miss Kersey, I need you to come with me. Chief Delaney! Uh, nice to see you. Are you ready to give a statement regarding the murder of Alice Crocker? No. I'm ready to arrest you for breaking into a crime scene. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you tell me that in an official statement at the station? Unless you actually want me to issue a warrant. The chief of police goes out to take people into custody. Hey, don't you have regular cops will do that? I wanted to do this myself. And you should come with me too, sir. Turn that thing off, Emma. We spent four hours in police custody. John and I were put in separate rooms, and we were asked the same questions over and over. Where were you last night between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m.? Did you break into Dr. Ananda's clinic and tamper with the crime scene? Did you access Dr. Ananda's laptop? The truth is, neither John nor I did any of those things. Chief Delaney believes that if I didn't do it, I either asked someone to do it for me, or encouraged people to do it in the last episode of the podcast. We denied all accusations, and with no substantial evidence, we were let go. I won't deny that after speaking to Mark, the idea of repeating my eighth grade stunt and breaking into the doctor's office crossed my mind. But I decided against it, because I knew I would be the prime suspect, and that would get in the way of my investigation. At the end of the day, my cautiousness was useless. I'm a suspect and I have nothing to show for it. Hello? Did you do it? You have to be more specific, Mom. I'm being accused of many things these days. This isn't funny, Emma. Interfering with an investigation is a crime. So the chief called you and told you to talk to me? He doesn't need to call me. My daughter's being investigated for sticking her nose in the police's business. I decided I had to see where I failed so badly as a mother. Mom, you're being dramatic. We want you to leave town, Emma. Don't get me wrong. Dad and I love you very much. We just think you need to stop, you know, getting us all in trouble. How are you getting in trouble? Stop asking so many damn questions, Emma. Go back to Boston. Come back on Thanksgiving. I'm not leaving, Mom. Go tell your friend the chief I'm not leaving, and he can stop using my parents to try to make me. Emma, your selfishness is so disappointing. Is it really worth it? Oh my God, your family, are they angry at you? 
I can't believe you're asking me that. I'm just saying, don't feel obligated to continue with this. You know, family is important. Now, there's other stories. There's other reporters who could finish this. I know. Don't worry about it, John. Really. They'll get over it. Let's talk about your X-Files news. Mm, Well, uh, Detective Benson, don't roll your eyes at me, Emma. That hurts my feelings. (laughs) Okay, go on, Mulder. A, A mermaid wants to talk to you. A mermaid wants to talk to me? That's certainly a first. Her name is Ariel. You are shitting me. (laughs) Let me finish. Ariel the Real One. That's her screen name, Ariel the Real One. On Reddit. Clever, right? Very. Ariel the Real One lives in Newport, and she's expecting us tomorrow morning. And what are we talking to her about? Merlord. She knows who Merlord is and how he is connected to Marrow's Cove. That would be a big break. Does she really believe she's a mermaid? Her answer to that very same question was, You humans are so simplistically and endearingly binary. So I guess we take that as a yes? I take it as it's complicated. We left the harbors in before dawn. It was a cold morning. Light rain hit the empty streets of Moroz Cove, giving the sleepy town a sad aura. Sitting in the passenger seat of John's SUV, I watched the houses pass by and wondered if I was doing the right thing pursuing this story. I lied when I told John my family would get over it. The truth was, I didn't know. I had done many things that infuriated my parents before, but somehow I felt this time it was taking it a few steps too far. My mother said, damn, and that was the biggest curse word I ever heard coming out of her mouth. The holidays are around the corner, so I better brace for an awkward Thanksgiving. By the time we got on the highway, the rain was hitting the car's windshield with fury. Visibility was terrible. Drops the size of pennies bounced from car to car, making it seem as if we were driving underwater. John seemed unbothered, though. He had a serious grimace, but I knew in his head he was singing under the sea. I hate driving in the rain more than in a snowstorm. Every time I drive in a monsoon like the one we were facing, I come to terms with the idea that it could be my last time driving. No, I'm not dramatic. I'm a practical pessimist. We arrived in Newport mid-morning stopped for a coffee at a place called Coffee Grinder, got two large fragrant house blends, and headed to meet Ariel the real one. John was giddy with anticipation. He denies it, but I know he hoped she was the real deal. I, on the other hand, just hoped she could shed any light on the identity of Merlord and the mystery around the Moros Cove kidnap victims. Are you open at all now to the idea of something Supernatural? I am a very skeptical person, John. I know. But is there even a tiny, tiny part of you that would even consider a supernatural explanation? Hey, I'm open to anything when I'm presented with irrefutable proof. (laughs) Well... Our 
our interviewee lives in a brick colonial home right across from King's Park. The two-story building facing the harbor has a beautiful second-floor deck from which I'm sure you can see some of the most stunning sunsets New England has to offer. Even though the house is probably the same size as my parents' three-bedroom home, I bet it costs four times as much. Ariel was not a poor mermaid, that's for sure. Ariel's real name is Nadia. Her skin is the color of cinnamon and her hair black, long, and straight. Her alert hazel eyes show the determination of someone who knows a thing or two about surviving. She opened the door wearing an unassuming white long summer dress, her manicured toes peeking out from underneath the seam. She invited us in and offered us a cup of tea. I had to elbow John twice so he remembered to blink and close his mouth. I don't know what I was expecting, but Nadia didn't look like a sea creature. She was attractive and unusual in many ways, but she wasn't the aquatic beauty that Alice Crocker was. I was born a man. Uh, what? You are staring. You know, there's something out of place. Something in the corner of your eye you can't really see. Something that bothers you. I don't fit the rules of your binary world in mind. You think I'm beautiful and somehow you feel like you shouldn't. I'm giving you the answer to the itch in your brain. I, 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 I didn't mean... Don't worry about it, handsome. It happens often. I don't mind speaking about my journey. Morphine is in my nature. Why deny it or try to cover it? Nadia, we wanted to talk to you about the man who called himself Merlord. His name is Charles. So you know him? I do. We, the sons and daughters of Agleope, are a small community. We keep tabs on each other. You both belong to the same club? The sons and daughters of Agliope? Ah, come on, it's not a club. Agliope was a siren in Greek mythology. Now her descendants are what we call mermaids. Her sons and daughters, hunted to the brink of extinction, now hide among the humans. He's a mermaid too? He's not. He's a worshiper. So he worships mermaids? Many cultures have seen divinity in us. You truly believe you're a mermaid? I will pretend I didn't hear your insulting tone, Emma. Your skepticism is saddening, but none of my concern. I don't need to explain or prove anything to you. If you choose to open your eyes or choose to stay in the confinements of your black and white world, that is up to you. We are here because we can be useful to each other. I can give you what you need, but I need a favor in return. I'm listening. Charles has, let's say, cooperated with the Marrows Co. folks for many years. Some that say centuries. If you really want to jump into the rabbit hole and join your friends and family in Wonderland, he holds the key to the entrance. But I'm warning you. I may not like what I find. Cliché, but true. So how do I get the information he holds? The way he records history is not as obvious as you would probably like. He keeps artifacts in a small cottage close to Marrow's Cove. And you have a key to his place? I don't. I can get you to the door. You need to figure out how to open it. So, burglary? (laughs) Handsome and smart. (laughs) Also really cute when he blushes. You can call it investigative reporting or whatever you want. Officially, the place has been abandoned for decades, so you're not breaking into anybody's home. Why not go in yourself? Do I look like the type of person who climbs windows? Besides, there are rules, Emma. Rules that keep us alive. Rules keep us in peace. And what will we find there? There are thousands of documents, diaries, figurines, pictures, and maps that you'll find interesting. 
His collection is vast, and not all of it is useful. I just ask you to bring me back one thing. There is a little framed painting of a woman dancing naked on a beach. I want that painting. Patrick Fitzgerald's daughter. Get me the painting, and I will share with you another truth. Do we have a deal? You can probably guess that we left Nadia's house troubled. We told her we would think about her proposal. She answered, More than curiosity is driving you, Emma. More than duty. It's a yearning in your soul that will make you accept my offer. She likes to speak like seers do in fairy tales. I guess that when you believe you are a mermaid, you just have to go all in. We're all thinking it, agreeing to break into a home, abandoned or not, following the instructions of a woman who believes she's a mermaid, is, at the very least, insane. Yet I was seriously considering it. I had the directions in my hand. They were written on a piece of white paper in curly, ornate handwriting. It was the calligraphy of someone who has practiced her letters for years, someone who took pride in every word she wrote. The art of writing has been lost, Nadia said to us as she handed us the directions. She was definitely the real deal. You being a real mermaid? You believe she was an actual mermaid? Wait, what if our understanding of what a mermaid looks like is distorted? What if they don't have tails and castles in the ocean? Uh, I'm not following. Come on. What if mermaids were a different branch of human evolution, a homo sapiens whose connection to the sea is stronger than our connection to land? Come here, for after all, sir, don't we all come from fish? You should put that on a t-shirt. We all come from fish. I'm serious. I believe you are. No, no, no. You believe I lost it. I think that a story about real mermaids would be amazing. For sure, we would make history. But this is not a supernatural story. This is a murder investigation, and we need to keep our eyes on that. We're not looking for mythological creatures. We are looking for a serial kidnapper and a murderer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we met some real mermaids along the way, cool? Sure. Hello? Emma, are you in town? Hi, Mark. Yeah, about 45 minutes or so away. Why? The chief is holding a press conference in an hour. Is he finally opening a murder investigation? I can't tell you that. I think you should be there. He is not? I really cannot tell you. Mark, what's going on? You and I know Alice Crocker was murdered. Get here soon. So what what was that about? The chief of police is making an announcement. He's officially letting us know he is covering up a murder investigation. We rushed back home. The downpour we braved in the early morning had moved south. Clouds were parting and the fall sun was shining brightly. As we entered Murrow's Cove, a sense of dread sat in the pit of my stomach. I was about to do something that would forever change my life, and not for the best. Chief Delaney was standing behind a light brown wooden podium, which seemed overdramatic, taking into consideration that there were only five of us there. He seemed serious, but relaxed. 
Mark, was standing next to him. He was avoiding my eyes, looking straight into the park on the other side of the street. After an extensive investigation and a conclusive coroner's report, the death of Alice Crocker has been ruled a suicide. Alice was a troubled young lady and, as a community, we did everything in our power to help her. Unfortunately, we couldn't save her life. We know in our hearts, and I speak on behalf of Dr. Ananda as well, that we've tried our best. Merrow's Cove is a welcoming and safe community. I want everyone to feel safe in their homes. We do not have a murderer among us. I was certain of that from the beginning. I'm happy to confirm that now. Chief Delaney, how did Alice take her own life? I'm not going to indulge your morbid curiosity, Miss Kersey. Well, did she cut her wrist? How did she get access to a blade? How she committed suicide is not important. I don't know what kind of place you work at, Miss Kersey, but here, we show respect for the victims. Well, how do you explain the splashes of blood all over the walls? I don't know who gave you that information, Miss. Who are you trying to protect, Chief? That's enough! Chief Delaney walked away fuming. I kept yelling questions at him and attempted to follow him, but I was gently stopped by Mark. Don't do this, he said to me. But I had already done it. I had accused the chief of police of conspiracy to cover up a murder, and there was no coming back from that. I knew there would be consequences, and I was ready for them. Sorry, Mark. From now on, all conversations are recorded, or they're not happening. That seems extreme. Your choice, Mark. I don't mean to be rude, but I have to do what I have to do. The recorder makes me feel safe. You know, I would never do anything to hurt you. I'm not stopping the recorder. Okay. You can record our conversation. Accusing my father of covering up a crime was not the smartest move on your part. What would you have me do in this situation? There is no situation, Emma. That's the point. The poor girl killed herself. Did your father put you up to this? Of course not. I care about you. I'm concerned. Just a couple of days ago, you told me the crime scene was gruesome. You said there was blood everywhere. Now, all of a sudden, you believe it was a suicide? I trust my father. Well, I don't. Emma, you're acting paranoid, even by your standards. My standards? You have always been intense. I love that about you, but this is crazy. I need to let you go, Mark. My crazy self has another murder investigation to work on. Was I being paranoid? Was I unfairly accusing two respected men in my community of an awful thing? My accusation was based on a phone call from Nurse Russo and an assumption after hearing Mark call the murder scene gruesome. At the end of the day, I had nothing but a hunch. I feel as if I'm not doing my best journalistic work here. I'm becoming too attached, too emotionally invested. I'm committing the same sin Chief Delaney committed. He entered the investigation convinced there was no murder. I entered it convinced that there was one. At the very least now, there's a kidnapping to investigate. Is it? Or just the story of a mentally ill woman who attempted to kill herself twice and succeeded at the end? Are you giving up? No way in hell. I'm just questioning my assumptions. If we're going to solve this mystery, we have to be open to the idea that 
No crime has been committed. We need an open mind. Up until now, we've been working to catch a criminal. We need to be working to find the truth, even if that truth means there's nothing at the end of the road. You know you have a point. We need to take a step back and look at the evidence. You know, we first need to find some evidence. Hello, Emma. Thanks for taking my call. I heard about your little stunt. That made me want to talk to you. You are keeping your end of the deal. Are you back in town now? No, it's not safe for me there. But I keep an eye on the news. I need your help. You promised me evidence. I could use some actual proof that a crime was committed. Check your email. You, You sent me something? Someone did. Good luck, Emma, and watch your back. Don't trust anybody. Don't trust Mark. In my inbox, there was a link to a shared folder. In the shared folder, a folder named Gifts. Inside that folder, three more folders with three names I knew well. Alice Crocker, Laura Jones, and Kelly Price. The three women who had washed ashore on the beaches of Murrow's Cove. I'll read to you the contents of those files, but first, I want you to hear an excerpt of the alleged 19th century diary John found online. There's a significant gap between that last entry we read and the next. This passage speaks about events that took place many months after the fisherman left town with the Irishman and his daughter. Our friend Nick Johnson from Waves 95.5 will read it for you once again. October 30th, 1812. Mary Wilkins was chosen as the gift. The decision was made by the Reverend. The men in the village thought that was the fair thing to do. The reverend is wise and merciful. Mary was chosen because she is one of eight children and the oldest. I think it is easier to say goodbye to one when you have another seven to care for. We left our houses before the sun was out and walked in silence to the beach. Leading our procession was the Irishman and Mary. His daughter was nowhere to be found. Mary's parents walked behind her. I looked sad, but resigned. I followed behind everybody. I know my place, and for the first time, I was thankful for it. At the beach, we formed a semicircle around her. The Irishman stood in front, facing the ocean. His spine was straight, but his legs were shaking. I know it wasn't the chilly breeze. He was afraid. We were all afraid. We knew the day was coming, but nobody was prepared. What we were doing was wrong. It was an unforgivable sin, yet we had no other choice. One girl, so an entire village, could live and prosper. One girl, so the children would not die of starvation and cold. The life of one for the life of many. The Irishman spoke in a language I don't know. He yelled at the ocean, and the ocean responded with wind and waves. His words became impossible to hear. We held on to our hats and lowered our heads. My face became cold and numb. Then the wind stopped. The beach became silent as a tomb. They are coming, he said. I closed my eyes. I couldn't look. I heard a woman scream and the mob gasp. Then silence once again. When I opened my eyes, 
Mary was gone. Her mother was on her knees, sobbing. We walked back, praying. The Reverend led our pleads for forgiveness. I don't know if the Lord is listening anymore. We are all devil worshippers now. We don't deserve his mercy. November 10th, 1812. Mary's mother was found dead at the bottom of a cliff. She had been missing for two days. The pain of losing her daughter was more than she could bear. She lost her mind. The Reverend visited her several times since the gifting ceremony, and he told me every day she seemed worse. Many families are talking about leaving, but the Irishman warned them that the curse would follow them anywhere they go. He says misery is their destiny if they fail to fulfill their part of the deal. Reverend and I knew the Irishman, and his witch daughter could not be trusted. They brought the devil into our lives. November 11th, 1812. The men have made a decision. No more girls from our village will be given as gifts. Mary's departure and her mother's death have shattered the soul of all of us. We cannot go through this again. They will find gifts in other towns. We will give them girls we don't know. Girls we won't mourn. Girls nobody will miss. They don't care who the gift is or where they come from. They just want them young and pure. Our sins are already unforgivable. Our souls are lost. We have nothing left to lose. I'm Emma Kersey for Massachusetts Public Radio, and you've been listening to Mermaids of Moreau's Cove. Mermaids of Murrow's Cove is hosted by Emma Kersey and produced by John Murphy in Massachusetts Public Radio. On the next episode of Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. There is no murder. There is no conspiracy. We found Alice Crocker's next of kin. There is no way out, Emma. Your adventure ends here. I saw what I saw. I am their final loose end. Don't miss the next episode. Like what you're hearing? Please rate and review us in iTunes. And tell your friends about Mermaids of Murrow's Cove.